Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. (laughs) Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It was the budget that seemed to please everyone. The budget that gave £1 billion more to the armed forces, £20 billion more to the NHS, £160 million to the police to fight terrorism, £28 billion for the roads, a tax on digital businesses, which everybody's asked for, an income tax boost, so you're not paying as much as you were, and the abolition of stamp duty under £500,000 for any house that you're buying for the first time, which is meant to help first-time buyers and probably will. In many ways, it was all things to all men and women. Even Jeremy Corbyn struggled to denigrate what Philip Hammond did yesterday. Uh, is it the greatest budget ever? Uh, or are you going to tell me, actually, uh, that we've got it massively wrong? 03444991000. Daisy McAndrew is here. We'll be looking at all the implications. But first, we are revisiting the state of the police in this country, uh, who didn't appear to get much of a boost at all, apart from the aforementioned uh, business to fight terrorism. Now they're telling us to investigate our own crimes because they haven't got the time. How ridiculous is this going to get? Are we all going to have to get our own fingerprinting kit? Are we all going to have to get our own magnifying glass? Are we all going to have to get our own deer stalker hat uh, and creep about like Sherlock Holmes? 03444991000. If you've had anything stolen recently, I want to hear from you uh, because you will be the ones telling us how it really is out there. Coming up as well, we'll find out why vegans don't have a sense of humour and just how tough it has become to be a white middle-aged man. I'm not sure who we're going to ask about that. You're listening to me, Mike Graham and Daisy McAndrew on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to kick off this morning uh, with the state of the police. The police, I don't think, were given any extra money in the budget. Uh, they're always complaining they haven't got enough money. Yeah. Uh, they were given £160 million, uh, for, you know, more terrorism uh, police measures that they can bring in. Uh, but as far as the regular sort of ordinary bobby on the beat, as it were, if yeah. there even is such a thing anymore, they're all saying they haven't got enough money. We're now being told, specifically by uh, Sergeant Simon Kempton from Dorset Police and, and from the police federation as well that basically you should investigate your own crime if it's a minor crime like burglary uh, or theft of some kind from the car that yeah. you've got just look into it yourself but we're going to talk to the man who actually suggested this in the first place right at the center of it uh, sergeant simon kempton from dorset police sergeant simon a very good morning to you welcome hi mike how are you thanks very much indeed for joining us i hope you don't feel as though we were unfair to the police in that uh, introduction to the story but i mean it does seem to be the case that you guys are just not in a, in a position to solve crimes uh, of a minor nature anymore so we've had to change the way that we do things because there's so fewer of us now yeah um and at the risk of sounding like i'm you know i'm a stuck record we've lost almost twenty two thousand officers uh-huh. in from the just, entire country yes from the entire country. Yeah. That's an enormous amount. 15% of our officers are just gone. Right. And what's really important is of the officers who are left are having to be taken away from some roles which have got a huge impact on the community, mm. like your neighbourhood policing, to fill gaps elsewhere. 
that are less visible. Your neighbour policing, um, they're the eyes and ears in the community who get to know the community, the community trust them. So to go back to um, Daisy's example of the burglary, it's your community officers who will hear who's doing the burglaries and then mm. we know who to target and we're losing those. Right. And why are you losing them? Where are they going? Um, filling gaps elsewhere. So what we, we, we lost 22,000 officers. So they've come, um, a lot of them have gone away from your, what we call the response rule. So right. answering 999s. Because that's one of the things that we absolutely have to do more than most other things. If someone's in danger right now, we need yeah. to get there right now. Right. Uh, and more and more, neighbourhood officers, rather than being on the beat in their community, being pulled back from that role to answer the 999s. For so they're actually answering phones? Not answering 999 calls, getting in the car, blue lights. Oh, I see, right, OK. So, I mean, basically a lot of the time for that, from that point of view, they'll, and I, don't, I don't say this is wrong, but they'll be sitting around waiting for something to happen then. Um, if only. So we're unique amongst the emergency services in that, well, we ought to be proactive as well as reactive. So if you're an ambulance and they work so hard, they're so dedicated, but their job is to wait until they're needed. Our job is to go and find criminals in between being called for assistance and investigate crimes that we've already been taking report of. Uh -huh. So my colleagues and I, we don't get the chance to sit around um, tapping our, our fingers on the desk or twiddling our so thumbs. So tell me, talk, talk me through your average kind of police officer's day from the beginning of the shift to the end. So if you take an early shift, say 7am 7, 7 till 4, you'll get yeah. into work half six, 20 past six to get your kit on, to go through emails before the start of the shift. Right. Uh, and that's not overtime. We'll just give that because we want to do as good a job as possible. Uh -huh. Start at seven o'clock. So back in the first time that I, I was an officer, um, I would have had one sergeant and maybe 10 or 11 constables. Um, and that was... Um, one of three stations in that town. Between those three stations, there would be three sergeants and probably 22, 23 constables. That same town is now served by one station and they'll have two sergeants and eight constables if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. That gives you an indication of how few officers there are now to answer those 999 yeah. calls. What would normally happen is the sergeant then would divvy up jobs. So overnight, we've had these jobs come in. Uh, here, Mike, here's a burglary. Here, Daisy, here's a... Uh, an online fraud, and then you go and visit that victim of crime, take the details, and do an initial investigation. Now, right. when I joined the police, we had enough resources that my sergeant would say to me, right, Simon, um, go and spend enough time at that burglary, go and look in the, the local pawn shop, go and you know have a quick look on eBay when it was in its infancy. Nowadays, for me as a sergeant now, if I say to a constable, can you do that, I know that some 999 calls are going to go unanswered. Mm. And that's the dichotomy that we've got now. That's the insidious position that austerity has put us in. So when you say unanswered, somebody's, you know, I don't know, try, trying to stop somebody breaking into their home uh, or there's a domestic violence situation going on and they're, they're ringing 999 and nobody's answering. That's the... That's the in, in, Is that actually happening? In, increasingly, that's happening now. High-risk jobs that would, we would normally get to well within 10 minutes are having to wait half an hour or an hour. Not because we don't care, because we care passionately. The reason we put ourselves at risk is we want to make the world a slightly better place than we found it when we leave it. We take in longer because there's fewer of us. And, you know, the example I gave you, that, that one town in Dorset, which is a very safe place, but where it used to have three sergeants and maybe 22 constables, now it's two sergeants and eight constables. The math speaks for itself, doesn't it? 
And, and what are you finding? I know that you've, you know, we've, we're talking about this story today because you've said that people need to, to investigate their own crimes, which is obviously, you know, yeah, a, a, to an extent. A, to, to an extent. But what do you actually mean by that? Sure. So actually, coincidentally, so I, I gave a talk on this at uh, an event run by Gumtree recently, but by coincidence, uh, the comedian Daryl O'Brien talks about it in his current stand-up tour. Um, and it's worth talking about what happens to stolen goods and what used to happen. So back in the day, um, I go and steal a mountain bike um, because I find it unsecure in the, in the high street. I'm probably going to go and sell that in the local pub or, or the local social club, wherever. Nowadays, that bike is going to be on an online platform within minutes, literally within minutes, and I'll be selling it using an anonymous account, um, which is why policing has had to change to keep up with criminals who've changed. Now, what Daryl Breen talks about in his stand-up is he had his bike nicked, and it ended up he found it on eBay. Uh, once he found it on eBay, he got into a chat with the criminal, the thief-stroke vendor on eBay, and at the same time contacted the police. And at that time, the police took over the, um, the conversation and ended up going round to speak to the, you know, the vendor stroke thief, um, recovered the bike and, and arrested the criminal, which is great. So one of the things that I said at this talk that I gave was because of the way that we've been cut to the bone and beyond, I don't have the resources now to write someone off to sit in front of a computer to look at eBay and Gumtree and Craigslist and Facebook and on and on and on. There's so many of these platforms. Because for me to write off that officer means that someone's not going to get an officer while they're being mugged. So increasingly what we're going to have to say to the public, and I, I hate saying this because it's not how it should be, but increasingly we're having to say to the public, if you see your stolen property on one of these sites, give us a ring and at that point we'll take it up for you. But what do you say to people who increasingly see stories in the press saying the police, you know, sort of keep answering, let's say, you know, uh, so-called hate crimes on Twitter and seem to have mm -hmm. unlimited, uh, you know, f ability to to scroll through Twitter looking for people being you know, taking offence, and yet at the same time say they've been cut to the bone? Yeah, that simply doesn't happen. What we don't get the choice as to what is a crime and what isn't a crime. So if a member of the public phones us and say, I've been the victim of what I believe is a hate crime on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, we don't get the luxury of saying, well, we're not going to investigate it because we've got to go and do this burglary. We have to do both, whether we like, to, whether we like it or not. Well, you've just explained to me how you don't have to do both. Though. You've already told me that you're editing your own business day as to which, you, which things you can do and which things you can't do. So you can't have it both ways. No, that's not saying we're not going to. It's saying we, we have to prioritise. So if you, if yeah, so what Mike I'm saying is you can't, so you can't, do, you can't do everything, Simon, is what I'm saying. Exactly. So if you're both, Mike and Daisy, if you're both a victim of a crime at the same time on the same day, and I've only got one officer, what happens is I will make a decision on to which of you is the higher priority based right. on what the, the threat is to you, what the, the effect that that crime has had on you. Right. And but what I'm saying is, is you, crime. you, yeah, but you can't basically do both, can you? No, we can't. Not what you're telling Daisy there in the in the question of a of a hate crime is that you have to do both. You're not doing both in other areas, so why do you have to do both when it comes to hate crime? Well, we have to do as much as we can on all crimes that reported to us, and in some cases, that's not very much because we're able to say that's not actually a criminal offence. You need to speak to the council, for example, because it's kids kicking a ball against the whatever. In other cases, where it appears a crime has been committed, we're duty-bound to investigate it. Now, what happens now is where that investigation might have taken a day or two days will now take a week or two weeks. 
where it might have been a top priority, it's now a second or third tier priority, simply because we have to resource your GBHs, your rapes, your... How many, how many crimes would you say, percentage-wise, that you investigate uh, do you not solve? Um, it's different for different um, types well, of crimes. Well, let's, let's lump um, them all together. Um, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, mate. Well, I mean, roughly, would you say that of the crime... I'm trying to work out how you prioritise, because I presume a sensible person would prioritise the crimes that you can solve, because clearly that is of more help to the community and to, and to the wider public than spending weeks and weeks and weeks on a, on a crime that you can't solve. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good, that's a really good thing to bring up, actually, and I, I can very quickly explain how we, how we prioritise. OK. And we use... Um, we use something called THRIVE, and it stands for threat, risk, and harm, and, and, and the vulnerability of mm. the victim. Yeah. So what that means is if you and Daisy both have your push bike stolen on the same day, it might mean different things to the two of you. So for you, you might shrug your shoulders and go, I didn't really care anyway, I've got a car. But yeah. that might be Daisy's only way of getting to work. So it's exactly the same type of crime, but we're not led by the type of crime or how easy it is to solve. We're led on what's the effect on that victim. Shoplifting is a really good example. But how do you decide whether I care less than she does? Part of it, well, you, you tell us, you say, this, this is my only mode of transport. How am I going to get to work? If I don't get to work, I'm going to lose my job. Mm. Whereas Daisy says, well, it's only a bike. So that's what you go on? It's a bit random, Largely. isn't it? Well, we're led by what we're told, aren't we? Yeah, but it's very random that you have to make those decisions. Presumably as well, you have to prioritise violent crime, you have to prioritise you know, crime which is liable to have damaged a property, that kind of thing, more than theft. And, and again, yeah, you, you, what you're doing there is you're reinforcing what I've just said. So we're talking about what effect does that have, what's the, the threat of it happening right. again. And, and um, presumably, Simon, when you're making those decisions, some sort of you know, experience and emotional, you know, maturity will, will kick in in that. I'm just thinking about, you know, different police officers would, some would struggle more than others in trying to do what's quite sort of delicate balancing act. Yeah, possibly. And, and, and we have um, different matrices that we use to help us come to these decisions, but it all boils down to the same thing. Um, what is the effect on you as the victim? So shoplifting is a really good example. A multinational shopping chain um, might have £500 worth of stuff stolen. And as much as that's a crime and it shouldn't happen, it should be investigated, the effect on that multinational chain is minimal at most. Whereas if that's, you know, the, the corner shop, that might be their whole weekly profit. Yeah. So it's not about what is... Do you worry, though, Sergeant, that, that you're encouraging sort of people to sort of not only solve their own crimes, but also kind of hand out their own vigilante justice? Because you're effectively saying, look, we are swamped. We can't organise ourselves into any kind of a proper force against crime. You're going to have to take matters into your own hands. I mean, that's the kind of subliminal message you're sending out here. Well, I hope not. And that's two sentences that you've just made up that none of which I've said. I but, beg your um, pardon, what, I haven't what, made anything I up, don't Sergeant. Please don't do accuse me of making things up. It really annoys me. Oh, well, what I've said to you is your subliminal message, which is not something you've said, it is something you haven't said. That's what subliminal means, right? Your subliminal so message... So in that case, it's really good that you brought it up, and I'm grateful for that, because what good. I don't want anyone to do is to be put themselves in any form of danger. I don't want anyone to go and, you know... Um, try and intercept the, the criminal or address the criminal themselves, because that's what the police are for. And, and all I'm saying, and all I said during this, um, this talk that I gave, is if only, if only we had the resources for a police officer to sit down and say, my job today is to look for stolen stuff on eBay, for example. My job today, and nothing else, 
is to look on Craigslist just for stolen stuff. But unfortunately, those, re- those days are gone. We don't have those resources anymore. If only we did. Look at yesterday's budget. The Chancellor gave three times as much money, almost three times as much money to potholes as he did to policing, and not one penny to frontline policing. So these issues that you and I have discussed over the last few minutes, not one penny to um, alleviate those those issues. They must believe that that's the right thing to do. I can't ask, I can't speak for the Tory Chancellor, and I've no idea why they won't give no. more money to the police. But they must have a reason for doing it. We've spoken to police, former police officers in the past, who have said there's an awful lot of wastage in the police force. And I don't particularly want to get into another new subject, which is maybe above your pay grade. But you know, we have 47 different police organisations in this country, all of which have various levels of management, which maybe they don't need. Um, possibly, like you say, I, mean, I could talk about that for days, and clearly you don't want me to. What I would well, it's say not that I don't we, want we, you to, it's just that we are, as most people are, Simon, limited by the constraints of time. So you understand the issues as well as I do, because you've got these constraints as well as I do. And I don't know why the government is failing, in my opinion, failing in its first duty to protect its citizens, because that's the most important thing a government can do to keep us all safe. I don't know why they're do not... Do you think we are less safe now than we were? Um, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, why do I think that? It's because crime's going up. So, for example, I mean, knife crime's gone up by 16% in just a year. Murders are up by 14%. Robberies are up by 30% in just one year. So that sounds less safe, doesn't it? It doesn't make any sense if that was really the case that we were becoming more in more, being put in more danger. The government wouldn't do anything about it. But, Sergeant, listen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Sergeant Simon Kempton, Dorset Police, uh, and also from the Police Federation. Uh, he's their lead officer. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's go to the phones. Uh, George is in Inch in Aberdeenshire. Hello, George. Mike, how are you? Very good morning to you, sir. What would you like to say? Mike, just really... Continuing what you're speaking about there in terms of even small-scale theft. Mm. My wife, she had her business card stolen with the purse. Right. And 
that business card was used contactless on four occasions within three quarters of an hour right. before we actually stopped it at the bank. Right, okay. Now, the bank was then able to tell us the locations that that business card was used at, the four shops. We went round the four shops mm. to see if they had CCTV, right. which three out of the four did. Right. We then handed all that information, you know, basically a, a spreadsheet, if you like, of here's the times, here's the locations, yeah. this is where it was used. Right. 22 days later and multiple emails chasing it, still nobody had gone and actually looked at really? the evidence. We then emailed the police, uh, the, the chief inspector of the area who then, of course, grovelling apology, mm. will investigate it. We then get into a month after it, and when somebody finally goes to the shops, they then can't secure the CCTV Ugh. evidence because they say that they've actually deleted the right. evidence, which I thought was a little bit... Well, I mean, that must be correct. That's what they've told us. But having basically done the investigation yeah. for them, they still couldn't actually just... You know, dot the eyes and yes, which which gives which gives the lie, does it not, George, to what Sergeant Simon Kempton was saying that although once you give us the information, we'll then go and carry out the investigation and and sort it out for you because they can't possibly do that because they haven't got time to do it in the first place. I don't understand how they can suddenly make time to do it once you've supplied it to them. You're absolutely correct, Mike. I mean that. I mean that is that is what has occurred on this occasion. You know, everything's been done for them. You know, you're holding their hand to solve the crime, right. and they can't actually just take it across the line for you. Right. Extraordinary. How much um, sort of did you did you lose in the end? I mean, it's not so much the money, I suppose. I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. I mean, we didn't lose a lot of money, you know. It was under £100. Mm. It's not a big crime. However, we knew where the purse had been stolen from. It was actually at a local school. That is going to be, you know, school kids, even yeah. if you like. Now, if they're getting away with that crime the first time, I'm fairly certain that will just escalate. You yes. know, they've got away with the first crime, you know, and it'll escalate to bigger and bigger crimes. I, yes. I would have been happier that a small-scale crime is nipped in the bud and the perpetrators know mm. they can't get away with it. No, you're absolutely in this right. Case, they've got away with it. What's it going to lead to, you know? No, quite. George, this is a great call. Thank you very much indeed. George and Inch there in Aberdeenshire. And Joanne is uh, is, is congratulating you on your very nice Doric accent uh, that you've got. Nice <laughs> to hear lovely, it on here. Uh, don't hear accents. it often on the airwaves. Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be a lot of people's story, that even if you do supply yeah. them with the information they're asking you for, they still don't do anything. Which, of course, is not what Simon was saying. He was saying, you know, if you can do that, then, you know, he was saying we haven't got the time to be trawling through needle, right. needle in a haystack, yes. you know, looking for, looking for your kids goods on all of these these websites yeah. but certainly it should follow that if you then do all the legwork as yeah. george was saying that you might then get some kind of result that's totally galling isn't it let's go yeah. to chris in chichester hello chris um mike we spoke yesterday yes i know yeah, i mean another issue another issue there that's been talked about um you know the, the thing is mike what you understand is today's cops these these guys they, and gals they've all recruited they're just not up to the job. Mm. That, that they don't know the law. Are they, they not trained properly? Is that the problem? Doing. Are they not well, trained no, properly? No, it's not just that. Let me give you an example. The Met have just sent out letters mm. to, to all officers of retired, I think, in the last five years. I mean, I retired years ago, so I'm too old. And I wouldn't go back anyway. Begging them to come back. Really? The people on the street. Yes. This is all kept secret. Nobody talks about it. But 
you know, it's all over social media if you look. Yeah, no, yeah. and of course the guys are saying no thanks. And the guys saying no, we've had enough. I'm getting out, and then a lot of them are going. So, Chris, when, when, when we talk when we talk about the number of police that have been cut, is part of that just a simple lack of recruitment and retention? Well, it, that yes, it is definitely a factor. But the, the, you see, I've got to say they have for the last ten or fifteen years this obsession with political correctness. Uh, you know, it just has actually brought in the wrong people, and they're just not up to the job. I mean, they're physically not up to the job, Mike. I mean, these days, I mean, and again on social media, you see cops fighting, and they get they get actually beaten up by the villains. Yeah, I know. Now that would never have happened in the old days. But when you, you know, say, the, Chris, when you say the obsession with political correctness has led to the wrong people being becoming police officers, are you saying that you know too too much diversity? It's, I'm trying to work out exactly what you're saying. Well, mm. well it, no, it's right across the minority spectrum. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, 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 you know, I mean, one... Well, it sounds to me like the police going, are in the minority in most of these situations. Well, I mean, well no, but if you look at the old one, where they actually reduce the height, you get cops now about five foot four looking up. Yeah. People glowering down at them. You can't do that. No. What happened to what happened that. to these civilians that they brought into police stations some years ago? I don't know if that's gone out the window now. But surely there was a well, time when, 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 for example, when we heard our sergeant there saying, "Oh, we haven't got time to trawl through social media uh, websites and and you know various uh, eBay type selling websites and all of that." Isn't that what the civilians are meant to be doing? Yeah, but they, yeah, but they cut the civil staff as well. There, there is a problem. I'm not going to deny there's a problem with money, but except, just just let me go across to the Met, for instance, yeah. and Dorset. Your Dorset sergeant wasn't a good example. The counties have never had any 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 uh, manpower or staff. They've always raced around like lunatics. But if you look at the Met, Operation Midland, okay, hmm. how much? Two and a half million pounds investigating a myth. Yes. Phone phone hacking and the journalist. You must have had a view on that. That was rubbish. Ridiculous. Total totally rubbish. ridiculous. They had more police I'm, I'm, working on that than they had on anything exactly. else in the previous the McCann, 10 years. The McCann inquiry. The yeah. McCann inquiry is finished. Mm. Let's stop tipping money in there so they can go off and have a nice holiday in Portugal. Yeah. That is rubbish. Mm. The other day, I think we had Leicester. We're, we're doing leadership training, costing millions of pounds. Yeah. No one was on the streets. Yeah, but these are all, and, presumably, these are all, Chris, uh, decisions being made by these people in higher echelons of management uh, who we really could do without, to be honest. Chris, yes, thanks for your call. But do you think so many of these decisions are police officers being lent on by politicians? Well, I mean, it's... We know, we with, know, with we know hacking, the, yeah, with McCann. Of course. They, 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 these are political decisions. Of course they are. And the police has been politicised, which we also know is a bad idea. Let's talk to Jim in Ayrshire. Hello, Jim. Hello there. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Jim. What do you want to say? Hi. Hi. I was actually wanting to say basically what that police officer, that retired police officer said there was. Mm. Um, years ago, the police were actually formed out of the military. It was boys that were coming out of the military, out the Paris, out the Marines. Right. But now they don't want that type of police officer anymore. Right. You've got to come to university. You've got to have a degree. These guys came into the police force. They had a university of life. They knew exactly. I mean, they were... Big tall guys, again, as he said, they cut down the height limit. Yeah. You've got police women out there just now are four foot six. Right. You know, they're trying to arrest a man of six foot and he's throwing her about like a ragdoll. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. You go you go on holiday to you go on holiday abroad, you go to go to Spain, mm. you see more police officers down the front on the on the province in, in any part of Spain on the prom than what you'll see probably 
I, I see my old radius in Britain. Yes. No, I don't you understand. I, mean? I don't understand I mean, where it went wrong. But what I don't get, Jim, and this is what I can't get an answer to, is why, if the government is responsible for making these cuts, why are they making them? Uh, if if it's actually endangering the public, because they don't care. It's as simple as that. They don't care. It's not affecting them. They're, they're living a totally different lifestyle for the mem- for the members of the public, mm. like you, me, and the person that's sitting next to you. Yeah. They, they, they're, when they're high up in, the, in, in Parliament, they've got security that, that that's basically 24 over 7. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. These people that are sitting in Cabinet are making the decisions. They're multi-millionaires. Everybody in Cabinet is probably a multi-millionaire. Maybe not at the back benches, but certainly in Cabinet. And they've got, they've got probably more um, private uh, security than we'll, than we'll ever have. You know what I mean? Indeed. Listen, it's a very worrying thing. Jim, thanks very much indeed for your call. You're not going to believe this, Daisy. I've just been sent a whole list of jobs available currently in the Metropolitan Police, including Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, which is currently uh, recruiting. Yeah, Guess I've, how I've much got... they get paid? £194,000 a year. Cheese, Louise. One hundred ninety-four grand. Basically, two hundred grand. Do you think I can apply? I think you. Sh- I think I'm going to apply. Definitely, I... I'm going to apply for the job. Uh, I'm going to be b- ruled out of it on the grounds that I'm white and middle-aged, of course. <laughs> However, then I'll sue them uh, and maybe win some money. We shall see. Uh, which takes us seamlessly onto Giles Corrin, the Times columnist, who this morning. Smooth. This morning. <laughs> now, it would be wrong for me, obviously, to suggest that Giles is in any way old. Uh, he is male and white. Uh, certainly not old, though. Giles, a very good morning to you. I'm, I'm 49. I'm finished. You no, you're not. No, there. don't even talk to me about being 49. You haven't even hit the half century yet. So 49 is a new 39. Uh, therefore, you're still young, I'm afraid, Charles. So well, I'm looking forward to moving into the area of old age where I've become part of a diversity uh, sector that needs to be encouraged to work soon. They'll have to keep me in the various jobs <laughs> I have because otherwise it would be ageist. Well, indeed. Although, uh, frankly, ageism is, is sort of the least of all evils, isn't it? Because those of us who are white and middle-aged and old and white and, and, and male are basically have got no chance of anything. I mean, if I did apply for that uh, job with the Metropolitan Police, Assistant Commissioner for 194000 I've got no chance of even getting on the shortlist. I, I don't... I don't I've got to say I don't know much about the police. In the, in the media... It's true that they are they are less and less interested in us, but I suppose they're only trying to correct ancient wrongs. It's just a bit of a bummer to be the ones who are who are copying it. But Giles, uh, you, you, you could big up your Jewish heritage. It doesn't count. We don't count. Um it's it's really strange. When I get I get I get I got accused of racism about three weeks ago for a review I wrote about a Chinese restaurant in which I observed that they spoke a different language from us and, and people fell on me with this racism. <laughs> I thought, you know, oddly, I mean, obviously there is racism towards the Chinese, but I, speaking as a, as a Jew, I mean, I grew up, it's not been terrible, but I grew up with a little bit of light bullying at school, banter in the office, which was a bit embarrassing. They recently just shot 11 Jews in a synagogue. You're in there, a sector which really does get uh, racist abuse. And it was very strange to find myself being attacked exclusively by uh, young white boys, by the way. These yes. are all 22, 22-year-old white boy graduates yeah. taking on the woes of the black and ethnic communities and women and trans people and homosexuals, none of which they are. They just sort of imagine this world in which such people might be offended in order to kill people like me. And I thought, God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, from a family that survived genuine, actual racism. How weird to come here and be told when I say 
I couldn't understand the way that he was speaking Chinese. Yeah. Um, but the food was very good. That that makes me a racist restaurant critic. It's it's a very strange. Well, it really has, and that's what I wanted to ask you about really as well, because your column today in the Times, uh, you you poke fun gently at the Radio Force Today program, which has mm. launched a new podcast for people who, uh, as you say, are not old male and white. Um, but we are in this world now, are we not? You're quite right, uh, where we are surrounded by people taking offence on behalf of somebody else and apologising uh, for what they are. It is. It is. Strange. Um, uh, I, that that uh, the, the column that I wrote this morning. Yes, yeah, so I, w- I was sort of saying that you know they're the Today programme. What they've done is they observing that they I think all their all their presenters are older than fifty, apart from one, right. uh, which I assume is Michelle who's saying he's a little bit under fifty. And they, you know John Humphreys is one hundred and ten years old. Um, <laughs> but then again, he's Welsh, so you know. But um, so and, and what they try to do is that they realise that they identify we do not have young black and ethnic female voices. True. That's true. What have they done? They're launching a 20-minute podcast. They're literally making a ghetto. And I speak, um, you know, I work for the BBC, so I don't want to say that too much. But Not but anymore, have, you um, don't. And, <laughs> and I love the Today programme. But they are taking, they have, they've got this staff of predominantly non-white women running this office, although the presenter, one of the presenters is a 46-year-old white bloke, so they haven't done that well. Um, and they put them in, and they're giving them 20 minutes online, and that's a ghetto. That's putting your young people in a ghetto and saying, all right, you can have 20 minutes. And I was laughing, going, well, listen, my column, I can't do anything about the fact that for 25 years my column has been written exclusively by a white male heterosexual, increasingly old uh, man. Um, so I'm going to you know, offer, offer Beyond, because they call it Beyond Today, I'm going to offer Beyond Jiley this, this bit of my column, and you can just go online and say what you think about my column. <laughs> I've had a good response to it on Twitter from, from young, mostly young Asian yes. women saying, look, um, is this true? And they're slightly taking the mickey out of me, and they're going, sorry, my young female ethnic brain can't get my head around whether this is a joke or not. <laughs> and I'm replying to them, listen, love, my old white male brain can't get over can't quite get through whether your young female ethnic brain is serious or not. And they've all been to something. So I'm going to put some of them in my column next week because, you know, obviously young ethnic female people deserve a voice, but I don't think she's doing it the right way. But this is the point, isn't it? You know, why should it be necessary for anyone to be of a particular ethnic type or a particular gender or a particular kind of bent, if you like, and I use that word very advisedly, obviously, um, to be able to understand other people? I mean, the whole point of being a journalist, the whole point of being a writer, a columnist, uh, is that you write and people read you if they like it. They don't read you if they don't like it. But Mike, just jumping in before Giles gets a chance, I think his criticism of John Humphreys, for instance, is a valid one, or not, you know, you criticise him for being 110. But I think you can, you don't have to be, uh, you know, non-white to have some empathy and you don't have to be gay to have some empathy, but you need the empathy. And I think one of the problems with the yeah. old school of presenters is they had neither. But isn't that they the case? They yeah, clearly you, didn't no, but have you're the being, empathy. No, but you're now being just as bad because you're accusing all old style presenters of no, no. being the same. They're not. No, I'm not. I'm saying John some. Humphreys may be a crusty old fool. You know, and I can say that because I have the protection of the law, Giles. But um, you I know, do, I, I don't think John's a fool. Although, although he was inc- every time I've been on Today programme, he's been very tough on me, and he was once incredibly mean to me. John Humphreys once, just before I went on air, he said, um, he said to me, are you, "Are you having trouble at home with your girlfriend, Giles?" I went, "What?" And he said, "Would it be anything to do with Rod Little, who was then editor of the programme?" Oh, yeah. Rod, Rod was was. Um, He's a word you can use on daytime radio. It, it transpired that Rod was doing something unspeakable with my recent ex-girlfriend. Yeah. I didn't know. Humphreys broke it to me two seconds before I went That's, on air. That is below the belt, isn't it? 
But this is what well, I mean. Lack of empathy. Right. I think in all, you know, certain interviewers give out an air of lack of empathy. And I think what that leads to, uh, you know, or, or of just not being very nice. And what that leads to is people to try and fix that problem by saying, right, because this, you know, this old crusty presenter clearly has yeah. no empathy, we must replace him or her with somebody who doesn't just have empathy, but lives in, you know, well, is exactly. wearing the shoes. And that's the mistake. And well, you just need do. to and find that, nicer that's... people for the jobs. <laughs> Well, they do, but they're they're over they're over correcting what they're doing. It's identity politics. It's 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 the scourge. It's the buzzword. It's identity politics. It's a, yes, we have to address black issues. White people are no longer allowed to even have an opinion about it. You know, that's that's the problem they have. There's a brilliant column in, on the same page as mine today by Hugo Rifkind about the business with Apu, and yeah. he's saying, you know, if we're getting rid of Apu from the Simpsons, you've got to get rid of all of them. Uh, and he, he's and he's pointing out that that Apu, the the um, you know the, the shopkeeper of Indian origin on, on the Simpsons. He was the most positive character in the show. They've got rid of him because of uh, complaints from a certain from a lobby about that it's a bad representation of an Indian man. But he was positive. He's the cleverest person on the show, apart from Lisa. He's he's uh, he's a he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's a family man, and he's a patriot. And he's positive in every way. But yet he's voiced by a white man, so he's got to go. And he was really representing a very positive vision of non-white Americans, two Americans, twenty-five years, and suddenly we're in this screwed up universe where the Simpsons have just, they just cut him out. He's just gone. Yeah. Well, comedy is the first uh, sort of uh, a victim, I suppose, of all this political correctness, sadly. But Giles, do you find yourself now when you're writing a column kind of scrubbing stuff out? I know that sounds rather old fashioned, but, you know, using the back delete button, shall we say, uh, when you go, no, I can't publish that. I'll better rewrite that. Do you find yourself doing that more? I, I, I just, I just no, I just can't. I mustn't. It's because my the re, whenever I have a storm come around my work, which happens about three or four times a year, a really bad one, right. which where I'm sexist. I did Weinstein, you know. I, I, I Weinstein's a monster, and I said so. But something about the way that I said it, I wasn't. They thought I was a, I was sexist, right. and, and, I, and I get sexist, and, I go, and all of those things. The truth is, I get a little bit of an attack, and I get this huge wave of thousands of people saying, "Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. You say the things that I." think but don't dare say so i feel i have to carry on what is interesting i've always seen myself as a liberal when i was younger i saw myself as a kind of left of center liberal and without changing what i think about the world the the, the sort of political tectonic plates have shifted so that i gradually became center then they told me i'm center right i spent the last 10 years they're telling me i'm conservative now apparently i'm reactionary (laughs) and i haven't really changed anything that i think it's just that they, they've moved the ground underneath yeah. me. So uh, but Giles, maybe saying, what you're saying though is you are admitting that you haven't moved with the times. <laughs> yes, that's the that's the key, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes, you're quite right. I mean, I, you're quite. I, of course, I, I I should. I said, but I might have moved a little bit. But I felt like I started off as a as an open-minded, not racist, not homophobic, not sexist man writing my opinions. <laughs> when I, when I started off at the Times in the early nineties. I was, people said, well, why don't, my lefty friends, why don't you write for The Guardian? And my attitude then was, well, I'd rather be the most left-wing person on The Times than the most right-wing person on The Guardian. Good idea. I'm now, I'm now one of the most right-wing people on The Times, <laughs> just, just because the papers shifted. We yeah. all shift. You know, the, 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 new, the Murdoch-owned newspaper record, we are now much, thankfully, much more open, much less conservative, much more liberal. But it's left me slightly out on a limb, feeling like one of the, one of the very right-wing ones. And I, I, I can't... If I, if I change what I think, it should come from within. It shouldn't be just to placate a load of screaming No, indeed. Students, well, listen, you can always rest assured, Giles, that if you need any kind of solace or sanctuary, you come to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, where you always be left to be. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you'll, you'll always feel at home here, I think. Yeah, well, that's why we have... That's why, I, as long as Rod Little is still there <laughs> on the Sunday Times, I know that, I yeah. know that I'm not the, 
the worst bastard on the paper. No, absolutely right. Tremendous stuff. Listen, Giles, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us this morning. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So let's say a very good afternoon to Carl Donnelly, who, by virtue of the fact that he is a comedian and a vegan, surely proves that, that vegans do have a sense of humour. Carl, a very good afternoon. Good afternoon. How you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, this is all a bit of a storm in a teacup, I know, but but people are taking themselves terribly seriously these days, aren't they? I know. I mean, I I read about it. I sort of saw it briefly last night and then had a proper read this morning. And, um, I mean, overnight, the... Uh... The reaction has magnified somewhat. Yes, I think people are, people are calling for him to be sacked, and I know. It's, I mean, it's that thing of I think, like you say, flippant. I think is probably a good word. I think it's probably quite a sort of silly joke he's made. I think the problem he's done is he shouldn't have done it in private to somebody who was actually sending a work email. No, and I think that's the other thing. He didn't say it in a joke. He wrote it on email, and of course, we all know that that can be take you can misinterpret <laughs> things on an email. You don't get the tone right. And just in case people haven't seen, so if you're a MasterChef fan, as I am, a MasterChef addict, you know, he's one of the critics on MasterChef and he edits the Waitrose magazine. And this freelance journalist sent an email to him saying, you know, could you do more plant-based recipes and more sort of, you know, vegan um, articles and so on? And he replied and said, thanks for this. How about a series on killing vegans one by one? Ways to trap them, how to interrogate them properly, expose their hypocrisy, force feed them meat, make them eat steak and drink red wine, William Sitwell. So you can see that you know, he did. He clearly went a bit too far, and he probably shouldn't have put it in, in an email. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, I, I I totally read it as a joke. At no point when I'm reading that did I think that he he's a murderer. Stand, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I didn't think he, he wants us to bring in some policies to murder vegans <laughs> systematically as a society. No, I mean but this I, is all I, this is all the fault of Celine Nelson, who's the uh, freelance journalist. That he sent the email to. She's the one who said, "How about he does more plant-based meal series?" And I mean, she's the one uh, who's been kind of complaining about this and saying I don't know, that, he, that fault might be a wrong phrase. She was just asking her. Probably quite a, you know, general inquiry. I, don't, I think that's not, Yeah, but I mean, this is, I mean, her quote, right? She's actually said this to BuzzFeed. He's representing Waitrose and he's talking about killing vegans one by one. Well, he's not really, is he? Well, no, I mean, he's, he, he is in the most technical terms, but no, it's, it's clearly a joke. But I, mean, I think the issue actually might be, I've seen him on MasterChef and he is quite a sort of flippant, sarcastic guy. Yes, he's so, sardonic. I, might, I mean, maybe she doesn't have the... She's probably got no experience of him and she might have an image in her mind of what he is. And I think she's probably read it much more serious than he's. Yeah. Now, are you sure, Carl, that the absence of meat in her diet um, has not led to her being, you know, so serious? I think, well, I think so, because I'm, you know, I'm a professional comedian of 10 years and I've been vegan for six of those. Okay. Right? I don't think I've. Like, I don't think I've got less funny in those six years. But, Carl, vegans do have... Well, of course, you might not be the best judge of that, (laughs) Vegans do have a reputation as being rather humourless. Is that unfair? Or is it just because they... they, A lot of vegans can come over as rather holier than thou. Mm. Well, I think when you've got a very strong belief in something, when that topic is, like, raised, you, you, you know, naturally get quite serious about it. But I think that doesn't... That's, I'd say that's for everyone. Any, most meat eaters, I know, if they've got a belief in a religion or something, they tend to be serious about that topic. But they quite so, often yeah. keep it to themselves, though. They don't often tell everybody else, because there's that, that famous vegan joke, you know. I don't know why, if you've met some of my Christian friends. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think I'd rather hang out with some vegans, to be honest. But when you, you know, when you say, you know, why did the vegan cross the road? The answer is uh, to tell you he was a vegan. Because, basically, that's the, the sense that you get from people. I've had a few run-ins on Twitter uh, with, with the sort of slightly more extreme version of, of vegan society. And they're pretty brutal people. 
I think yeah, there's always going to be there's well, cause I think it is such a emotive issue. Once you know, when you become, you know, if you're a vegan, you're normally a vegan because of the ethics that you think are involved in the you know animal agriculture. So I'm very you know I, I, I totally agree that it's the right thing to do, but I tend to prefer going about talking about it in a much more you know approachable manner because I think that's the better way to yeah. do it. It tends not to put people off if you're just a bit more. But do you feel do you feel as a vegan, Carl, that you have to tell everybody else that they should do it as well? No, I don't think. I think you should live, you know, as an example. I just do. I've got friends who've gone vegan since I went vegan because they just saw that I just I made it look easy. I didn't moan about it. I didn't. I just did it and sort of seemingly was happy with it. So Mm. I've got friends who thought I'll give that a go, and actually they sort of had a similar experience of, you know, gently easing into it. So I'm much more of. I know, but I think you need both sides. Mm. You know, any sort of cause, you need the people that will do the sort of hard graft and shout about it and then you need the ones like me just sort of and Cole, do you do you joke it. about it in your comedy is it a... loads yeah i mean which obviously goes against the whole me saying oh, we don't all bang on about it and then so I you actually get up on the stage and declare yourself to be a vegan yeah but i tend to tell stories about what it's like to be vegan so you know to sort of show the funny side of it like i've got a little story i do on stage go on tell us i i offered a I bought some tofu to eat on the go and it had honey in it. I didn't realise it had honey in it, so I didn't eat it. So I decided to do a good thing and I went to give it to a homeless man and I offered it to him and said, oh, do you want this? It's really nice, but I'm allergic to it. I just thought I'd lie. And he goes, what is it? I said, it's tofu. And he went, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. Yeah. I would have been in his Mind camp. Mind you, to be fair, a lot of them don't want any food that you give them. They just rather have the money, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, but I mean, I think it was one of the moments where it really sort of gave me a little moment of self-awareness. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, I'm just reading, actually, in this piece about uh, about the vegan story that Adrian Childs, apparently, has suggested that his veganism has led his friends to ostracise him. And his quote is, I've lost my love of going out to dinner a bit as I'm almost vegan and none of my friends is. How can you be almost vegan? What does that mean? Well, I mean, there is that. There's a phrase that people use called flexitarian, which is you're vegan most of the time. But like, well, doesn't that I, mean I you're not know. a vegan? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it does mean you're not a vegan, but I don't want to sort of be so categorical about Adrian Childs. <laughs> but it's like, I mean, even he's worked out that actually maybe his friends just don't like him very much. Well, this is it. I think they might have just finally found an excuse to bin him off. Yeah, exactly. But co- cooking for a vegan, if you're not, if you're you know, a carnivorous family, is mm. is pretty tricky. <laughs> Well, it is. I mean, cooking for vegetarians is simple because I've been doing it all, you know, most of my life, you know, and that's not a problem. But yeah. veganism is a bit more complex. I think a lot of people genuinely don't know what veganism means and they don't actually well, know thing. what you can and can't eat. Well, I mean, I'd, uh, for anyone who's thinking of cooking, who needs, wants to cook for a vegan, I'd always say just cook South Indian foods like uh-huh. dals and stuff like that. I mean, so most South Indian foods vegan already. So, you know, a certain world cuisine. You can't put any cream in it, though, can you? Presumably. No, but a lot of South Indian food is coconut cream. So it's not green. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's sort of like there's actual, you know, there's def- there's definite tricks if you're not a vegan cooking for vegans. Just look to like a lot of Middle Eastern food, you know, mm. just look to certain parts of the world where they tend to eat less meat and dairy. So, Carl, will you still be shopping at Waitrose or will you be vetoing it after William Sitwell's <laughs> comments? Vegan veto. <laughs> well, here's the irony. He's obviously a bigger head, but also they've recently just um, set up, Waitrose now has a massive vegan section. So it's sort of a... 
Well, I think that's why he's he's he has got in big trouble with the bosses who've made him release a groveling apology. I think because they're. they're, I've not read an apology yet. Yeah, he said. You know, um, (laughs) he said choices vegans make. Sorry, the choices vegans make are incredibly important, and I totally support and respect them. And they went went on to say how terribly I love and respect people of all appetites. He said, be they vegan, vegetarian, or meat eaters, blah blah blah. I apologise profusely to anyone who's been offended or upset. (laughs) On behalf of vegans, I accept his apology. Yes, I think you should, on behalf of vegans, Carl, be be on a rescue mission to save William Sitwell's job. I think it's it's down to you. You Get the old uh, sandwich board out. I I put a message online actually saying that he clearly made a joke. I don't don't think it does us any service as vegans to not be able to take a joke. So I think it's something I, I do think, you know, that the reaction probably will do more damage than... Yeah, well, let's hope so. Let's hope the world gets a bit of a sense of humour about this kind of stuff because it's starting yeah, to really upset me, to be honest. Carl, well done. Thank you very much yeah. indeed. Carl Donnelly, a comedian and vegan, proving indeed that vegans yep. do have vegans a sense of humour. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.